0: Amen. Thank you. Good to be with you again this week. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 this morning. My name is Jonathan, uh, this is my second Sunday here. Last Sunday was my first actual day uh, of of serving and so I'm still getting used to things here. Just because I'm standing up here preaching doesn't mean I can tell you how to get anywhere if you're visiting with us uh, this morning. So ask somebody who looks like they know where they're going and what they're doing. But it's a joy to be with you today. Uh, Thank you for um, just a chance to to speak again. And we are in the midst of a two-week series uh, on discipleship. I, uh, I, I know just real simply in terms of one-word titles for each one, as I mentioned last week, uh, known and today, grown. And so when I say grown, I don't mean grown as in, oh goodness, when is this sermon going to be over? Not that kind of grown, uh, but a different kind. We, uh, we looked last week at a, at a combination of know and known, sort of the, the active and the passive verb, that if we're going to know Jesus and grow in our knowledge, we have to be known by Him as well, that there's a relationship side to that. In the same way, as we come to Acts chapter 2 today, we recognize that not only if we're thinking about discipleship to say, I want to grow in my faith, uh, we recognize we have to be grown by the Lord under His leadership and His guidance, and not just we ourselves. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Lorenzo de' Medici. He was a a Florentine uh, patron of the arts. He he did a lot of big productions that he was really uh, proud about in Europe some years ago. And among his productions were, uh, were several amazingly realistic uh, religious pageants that were performed in churches. One Pentecost, Lorenzo went too far, though. He used actual fire to depict the descent of the tongues of flames on the apostles. And the fragile stage uh, set that was there caught fire, and before long, the horrified onlookers saw that the entire church itself caught fire and burned to the ground. The, uh, the moral, according to John MacArthur, is clear, pray for Pentecostal power, but don't try to manufacture it yourself. Uh, That for us, we come today to the Bible and seeing what God did on an amazing occasion, which sets a pattern for us to looking to His guidance and His leadership, not to manufacture or to try to create something ourselves, but to see how He works and to be drawn into the beauty of that and, uh, and to find grace and wonder in that. We, uh, we're coming to a passage, too, that as, as speaking on discipleship, as Pastor Brandon asked me to do so, and if you're visiting with us, you can know the, uh, that he is going to be back in the pulpit beginning uh, next week, and so I know we're all excited about that. And so uh, as we get a chance to do that, as he asked me to, to speak on discipleship, I came to that thinking through that in much of a way of, of motivation as opposed to methodology, And uh, I remember having a seminary professor that said, the greatest evangelistic method in the world is trying. Uh, That for us, the the difference maker often for us is not going to be getting the strategy perfect, but instead reaching out to the Lord and calling on Him and being motivated to move where He is leading. And so I'd like to look at Acts chapter 2 today to see sort of the other bookend of the story of Simon Peter. Uh, You might remember, if you were here last week, we were in Luke chapter 5, the beginning of Simon Peter's story, in essence, for him meeting the Lord Jesus. And we come today to Acts chapter 2, where we're sort of beginning the next chapter. If you've been in church for a while, you might know that Luke wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but he wrote the book of Acts as well. And so, the book of Acts is kind of the Gospel of Luke part 2, so the story continues, and we see Simon Peter. Uh, here today. I'm going to read one verse as the passage that we look at. We're going to be going through bit by bit, but I'd like to look at one verse this morning, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, and then for us to say a word of prayer together. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, says this, "'But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "'Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you,' and give ear to my words. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your presence, your truth, that that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would be what permeates this time into our hearts, our lives, our hands, our feet, our voice. And so, Lord, would you do the work that only you can. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you might remember much of Simon Peter's story if you're familiar with the New Testament. We're coming to Acts chapter 2, and let me try to bring you to the passage a bit so you'll know what's going on just in case you might be in a different place here this morning. Acts chapter 2 comes right after Acts chapter 1, as you might guess, and in Acts chapter 1, we see the ascension of Jesus back to His Father in heaven. And from that as well, we see a miracle where the Holy Spirit comes in power upon the disciples. In that, through uh, tongues of fire and in their speaking, as they're speaking to the crowd that is gathered there, much of them, even though Jewish people, being from the dispersion around the Mediterranean world, have other heart languages, and so they're hearing the message of the gospel given by the disciples, and in that, they are hearing it in their own native language. All kinds of different languages gathered there, and all who hear are hearing the gospel given just to them personally in the language that they need to hear it. And so it is in light of that miracle that Peter then steps into speaking today, and uh, and I love the way that we see him. If you know anything about Peter's story, you know that Peter is uh, someone who frequently in the gospels opens his mouth only to put his foot in his mouth. The more he speaks, the more trouble he gets into. Even at one point in the gospel when he's commended for saying something wonderful, he immediately ruins it. That is, Jesus is saying, well, who do you say I am? And Peter is the one to pipe up to say, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood haven't revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus goes on to speak about how he would suffer and be given as a sacrifice for many. And Peter says, Jesus, let me tell you something. You don't want to be talking like that around here if you want to find success. Surely what you're saying is not going to happen. And then Jesus, having just commended Peter, says that famous line, get behind me, Satan. Peter speaks, his foot inserted into his mouth. The Last Supper, Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to be given over to the authorities, that he's going to suffer and die, and that all the disciples would fall away. And Peter says, let me tell you something, Jesus. All these other guys in here might fall away, but I will follow you all the way to the death. Jesus looks at him, and says, Simon, Simon. Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. And Peter, of course, denies Jesus, even as Jesus would go on to say, before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you knew me. And so Peter's really used to having something to say, and also really used to finding that whatever he had to say didn't work out too good. I love how we come to this passage and. Acts chapter 2, because there's a change that has taken place in Simon Peter. And we get a little glimpse of that in verse 14. But Peter, reacting to the reaction of the crowd, this this conjunction, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. I'd like to give you a few points today. That's kind of my way of doing things. I'm going to do that here today. The first thing I want to say to you is that Jesus makes us ambassadors and not grandstanders. Jesus makes us ambassadors and not grandstanders. I love that Luke includes this phrase because it's so important for us understanding the progression that Peter has made. Peter standing with. The 11. What does that mean? That means finally when Peter opens his mouth, he's not just concerned with what he himself thinks. He is speaking on behalf of all of the disciples and the process that God has done in his heart and his life has brought him to a place that now when he speaks, he's communicating what God's heart is. Don't we need that? That for us, God's work in our lives, Him growing us as a disciple, means less and less when we open our mouth are we saying, let me tell you what I think. And more and more, the work that God does in our hearts is that the outflow of our hearts is that God's heart comes out. Peter, standing with the eleven, becomes an ambassador and not a grandstander. I grew up like probably many of you did in different avenues of Southern Baptist life at one time being a royal ambassador, getting to say that pledge and a reminder of that verse, we are ambassadors for Christ. The thing about an ambassador is an ambassador is only as good as how effectively he or she communicates the heart of those who sent them. An ambassador that does his job doesn't stand up and say, well, let me tell you what I think. No, they're called to communicate the heart of those who sent them. And Jesus has done that for us. And the more and more we look like Jesus, the more and more what we communicate sounds like God's heart. And less and less like, well, let me tell you what I think. And let me tell you what really gets to me. And let me tell you this and let me tell you that. Because we're not ultimately trying to point people to ourselves, but to the Lord Jesus And then Peter goes on. He's describing to the people that what you're seeing is not a result of alcohol. This is a miracle that is taking place. And he comes to verse 16. If you've still got your Bible open, verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm guessing that not a lot of you have crocheted pillows at home with quotations from the book of Joel. I'm gonna guess that not a lot of you have framed artwork at your house or perhaps verses etched into stone or to wood or in some sort of you know, picture as people come in the door that probably Joel is not highly quoted among most of our homes. Now that's not to say that Joel is not authoritative scripture, that his word has not been brought down for us, but we recognize that Peter is not only going to the well-known passages to point to who Jesus is and what he's doing, but he's quoting here, and that's an evidence of the fact that Peter's knowledge of the scripture has grown in a wonderful way. The second thing that I would say this morning is that when God grows us as disciples, the word of God is internalized and applied. The Word of God is internalized and applied. If you were to flip backwards to the end of Luke's gospel, you'd see this great phrase that the resurrected Jesus meeting with the disciples, we we read this, that the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus opened the disciples' minds to be able to understand the Scriptures. And God at work in our hearts and in our lives as well is going to be doing that same work slowly but surely opening our minds to understand more and more the information and the revelation that has come to us through His Word. God need never say more than He has already said. And so the question then for us becomes how well is God's Word making its way inside of us and then in in that being used more and more to say the whole authority and the whole counsel of Scripture being made present. Uh, for, for application in my life. The Word of God internalized and applied Peter gives a a, a long speech. If you continued on in Acts 2, if you've still got your Bible open, you might see offset text as mine uh, shows. My Bible shows that he's quoting uh, Joel and that this is somewhat uh, uh, poetic language even though it is prophetic language. And he comes through all of this incredible uh, uh, speech from the prophet Joel as he comes to the last verse in verse 21 of that quotation. He says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Now, if you were to lift your eyes a little bit higher in the passage that Peter gives, you would read things like verses 19 and 20, and I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And you come to that and you say, boy, that's some fireworks, isn't it? That's some wonderful things in Scripture. What mystery and what power and what greatness, things that are being described. And we could just spend all month unpacking what that is speaking about. But you know what? The culmination of the entire passage was not the fireworks in verses 19 and 20. It was the offer in verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean? Number three is this. God's Word at work makes others' salvation the pinnacle. God's word at work makes the salvation of other people the pinnacle. That means whatever uh, charts, whatever timelines, whatever codes, whatever, anything I wanna know about the the Bible and prophecy and and wherever I wanna go in history and, and, and otherwise in the Bible, there is nothing more important that the Bible ultimately points God's church to than the free offer of the gospel available for all people from the very beginning. Joel reaching backwards into the Old Testament, speaking forward that same truth that Jesus illuminated in such a special way, and now is becoming more and more real in the life of His church and in history, that there's nothing more important than the salvation of those who need to know. It's not just for some. It's not just for the qualified. It's for those who fit the category of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. God's word at work makes others' salvation the pinnacle. And so what that means is that the more that you and I grow, the more intentional the Lord is going to move our hearts and lives and words and relationships to say, and you know what, it's not just all about me. It's not all just about what I can know and gain, but how the Lord's desire is that all uh, would call upon his name. Peter then begins to speak. As he's continued quoting, now he's going to begin to use his own words. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He went right to it, didn't he? This Jesus who was promised and did mighty works and did wonderful things, you killed him. And there were people in the crowd who perhaps said, well, Peter, I actually wasn't here you know, several weeks ago when that happened. I don't, I'm not sure you're talking to me. You may be talking to somebody else. Peter goes right for the problem. Now, the problem wasn't just that those present in that day had had liability and culpability. Certainly, many of them perhaps in that crowd had, but the message that each of us hears and knows and recognizes that the Lord Jesus came because of our guilt and our sin. And So whether we were involved in the group that met there that day, the group that cried out, give us Barabbas, his blood be on our heads and on our children. Whether we are involved with that group physically, we're all collectively spiritually involved with that group. The problem that each of us have is our guilt and our sin. And you know that has to be established somewhere along the way. There's no one in your life or in my life that can find a solution to the problem unless they understand there's a problem. And so Peter focuses on the problem. Number four, we have to establish the problem, but we focus on God's victory over it. We have to establish the problem, but we focus on God's victory over it. I love that Peter goes straight to the fact that there's a guilt that has to be resolved, and there's a problem that has to be atoned for. And then if we were to continue reading, you would see that for the next nine verses, Peter does not continue to beat them over the head with their own guilt. He begins to offer them the truth that now you know your guilt. God knew it beforehand. God's sovereign over it. God's mighty enough to rescue from it. And again and again, as he goes on, he goes into Uh, the, uh, the, the great hope of the fact that God has made way through Christ and that Christ was not killed by an angry mob that then got in the way of God's plan, but God's plan all along was what had taken place and that God's big enough to take care of our sin and our guilt and our shame. Sometimes in our day what we hope for folks is to be able to say something along the lines of, you know, I see that you're sad and Jesus will make you happy. I see that you're empty, and Jesus will make you full. Now I see that you are without, and Jesus will make you uh, to, to, to be cared for. And, and, and all these kind of things can be true, but they miss the very basic premise of the gospel that we are lost and need to be found, we're dead, and need to be made alive, that we're guilty. And our guilt needs to be paid for. It's challenging in the midst of our conversations, our relationships, to get to that point gently, to say, you know, there's something wrong. There's something that needs to be dealt with. But all in that need, how God has provided. We establish the problem, but we focus on God's victory over it. Now I'm gonna do one of those deceptive preacher things and, and do this just a little bit, okay? Can I do that? I'm gonna give you the last point, but I'm gonna have subpoints to that point. So it's just kinda, you know, those of you who get excited when the pastor says, my final point, it's a little bit of a mixed bag this morning here, I gotta say. Sometimes the preacher's got to be like Pharaoh and let God's people go. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but I'd like to give you one point with some sub points in that because we see a miracle at the end of this chapter that I think is even mightier than the miracle that takes place at the beginning. And the last point is this, disciples grow by growing disciples. Disciples grow by growing disciples. Have you ever had the experience of teaching Maybe you taught a Sunday school class, you taught some children, you taught in vacation Bible school, you taught through a work avenue. It, one of the things you find is that when you teach, you learn better than you ever learned when you were sitting in the classroom. Teaching teaches the teacher. And there's a great blessing for teachers in that. I have a friend who uh, has just recently gone into vocational ministry and children's ministry, and she didn't grow up in church. And so a lot of the basic foundation of biblical teaching, she just didn't have. But as she came to faith in Christ, she had a heart for kids, and she began to help in in children's classrooms and help in teaching kids. And one of the things she tried to do was just be one week ahead of them when whatever they were learning. And she learned bit by bit in a powerful way, being the person to help relay the truth of God to small hearts and minds. And in that, God did some great work. In the same way, if those of us are seeking to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we will only make it so far in that progression unless we're willing also to have a transference that says, God, I know that your ultimate plan is not just that you would grow me, but that you would use the growth in me to grow and to affect others. Disciples grow by growing disciples. Any of you in here like buffets? You ever have the experience of going to a buffet? I had to get married before I realized that women don't care for buffets nearly as much as men care for buffets. But you ever have the experience, for a lot of us, particularly the men in here, when you go into a buffet, you usually have some optimism when you're heading in the door, don't you? You start to get excited, and you think, oh, it's seafood night. I'm going to make sure I get this, and then I make it over to that. And then, of course, if you're a man as well, you say, well, I'm going to get my money's worth, and if it's going to cost this much, then I'm going to have to eat this much. And you have this beautiful optimism when you're heading into the buffet. Have you ever experienced that before? Now, what's the feeling like when you're walking out of the buffet? It's a little bit different, isn't it? You're walking out of the buffet thinking, I just really overdid it. We don't need to come here again anytime soon. I'm not sure this is healthy. What was I thinking? You have these kind of thoughts on the way out. And can I just tell you, for the buffet that the Lord has called us to sit down at, the beauty of his word and the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ in relationship with Jesus and at the same time the power of the holy spirit for that for that great feast that he has called us to sit and to dine in, in the words of Michael W Smith in the 1980s if you reach back that far love isn't love unless you give it away and we as christians aren't called to simply feast and to feast and to feast and to feast There's a calling to say, Lord, there's work you're only going to do in me. There's growth I'm only going to have. There's knowledge that I'm only going to gain if I'm involved in what you want to do in the hearts and lives of people that you've placed in my midst so that they might come to know Jesus Christ. We come down to verse 37, and I'd like to read that. Peter's continuing to speak. We then see the reaction of the crowd. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? There is no better question to get from someone who needs Jesus than that question. What shall we do? Because then you know everything has been set up for you in such a way that all that's needed is the gospel at that point. What should we do? It's the question that the Philippian jailer asks of Paul and Silas after they've been singing through the middle of the night. And the ground begins to shake and the prison doors swing open. And the Philippian jailer, thinking that everyone has escaped, goes to end his life. And Paul and Silas cry out, no, 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 we're here. The Philippian jailer falls on his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas go not only to him, but also to his household, and they believe. We think of the Ethiopian eunuch to Philip the Evangelist who says much the same question, what shall then be done or what shall I do? One of my favorite books, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan paints the picture of Pilgrim beginning his journey with this huge load of sin on his back, reading the truth of Scripture and finding out what it means for him to be guilty before God and beginning the book with this question, what shall I do to save my soul? What shall I do? At the point where God has brought someone to that question is the point where He's doing some of His greatest work. What shall we do? Sometimes it's hard for us in our ministry to others to be reminded of the fact that a decision has to be made at some point. It's not enough for us to love. It's not enough for us to extend kind words. It's not enough for us to be there. Those are all wonderful things. But the reality of a decision needing to be made, I love what Parker shared about his son and and just the work going on in his heart and his life. The need for a decision, and the people here are at the place of needing a decision. And so the second sub-point that I would give after answering what shall we do is then this, that we make a patient investment, that we make a patient investment. Peter begins to speak in verse 38, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, that's us, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter gives a response. This is what you should do. You should repent, echoing those words of Jesus in Mark 1. 1 that you're to turn away from yourself and you're to turn to Christ, that you're to surrender to him. I wonder if Peter thought back to the passage we were in last week, himself falling down at Jesus' knees and saying, you're gonna wanna go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus saying, you don't need to be afraid. Peter looks back and remembers the surrender that he had and he he thinks of that great word that he heard from the mouth of Jesus so many times, this need to turn and to repent. To be baptized is a sign of what's taking place. In our day and age, one of the phrases we use is talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That came in because a hundred years ago, people seemed to only emphasize a public relationship with Jesus Christ. And they had to hearken on that bit to say, you need a personal, individual relationship with Jesus. In our day, sometimes we need to tell folks, not only do you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that should be public There's a way in which God's called you not to, on your own, when nobody else knows, be a follower of Jesus, but personally and publicly. And that this message, this promise, is for you, for your children, and for all those who are far off, as far as you want to go. There's nobody who this promise does not extend as a hope to. And so then we see this beautiful phrase in verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness. With many other words, he bore witness. My wife and I like old movies. It's one of our things. We we love black and white movies. It's almost like we don't want to sit down and watch it if it's not black and white. There's just something exciting about that. One of our favorite Christmas movies is the old 1951 version of A Christmas Carol. I think they've made one of those about every six months for the last hundred years. And so that'll distinguish it for you perhaps a little bit. But you're probably familiar with the story of Ebenezer Scrooge and how at one point in that story, as many of you know, Tiny Tim, this character that you're introduced to. Scrooge has seen a kind of futuristic reality where where that perhaps is something where Tiny Tim doesn't live through the, the sicknesses that he has. And so you're brought into the Cratchit household whenever they are mourning the loss of Tiny Tim and the older brother is sitting there in the living room. And the movie shows that he is reading out loud from one of the Psalms. Great hopes that they would take in that time. And I can't help but think, every time we watch that movie, unless something drastic changes, there will never, ever again be a film adaptation of A Christmas Carol where someone sits down and reads from the Psalms as part of their normal, everyday life for a family. We've drifted away from that, haven't we? And I say all that to say, that we have to remember the generation and the day that we live in means that more than likely it's going to take many other words for people to hear the gospel, understand it and respond to it. We no longer live in a day and age where people have a biblical foundation just through their culture that they are given just simply by belonging to society. That has changed so it's going to take many other words. One of my heroes, missionary heroes, Adoniram Judson, some of you might be familiar with his name, it took him seven years to reach his first convert in Burma. Seven years. I'm reminded of that sometimes, and I say, Lord, why in the world do I think it's going to be such a fast process by the people that you've placed in my life? Often it's going to take many other words. It's going to take a patient investment. There's a man who uh, is, is my one right now, if we're thinking, who's your one? that I get a chance to speak to uh, fairly often. We have spiritual conversations, and they weave in and out of being so wonderful in terms of the the, the things that we talk about spiritually, and almost immediately they turn into bizarre, strange, and discouraging, that it takes time. And so in that, we are called to a patient investment in others. Peter goes on and he continues. I'd like to look down at uh, verse 41. So those who received... Oh, excuse me, I, I missed the verse there. Uh, for the promises for you, verse 39. For your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, with many other words he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from the, this crooked generation. Verse 41 So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people. Can you imagine a church service where 3,000 people joined at the end of the service? Can you imagine, you know, bless our leadership's hearts as they go to those preschool leaders and they say, you're going to have four times as many students in your class next week. <laughs> you're going to, I mean, what a wonderful blessing, but can you imagine the logistics? They had no facilities. They had no full-time staff. They had no budgets. They were, they were the church of Jesus Christ operating solely on the Holy Spirit, but that was enough. And Jesus, in the midst of that, in the midst of the gospel going forth, there are 3,000 people who are added, but not 3,000 people. You see what the scripture uses here? 3,000 souls. My uh, father is a retired, recently retired airline pilot. He flew for U.S. Airways, Piedmont Airlines reaching way back, and then American Airlines there at the end. And I got a chance a few years ago to see that movie, Sully, about the miracle landing on the Hudson Uh, You might have known that story that the plane that had to land there. My dad flew for the same airline. He flew the same airplane. He flew the same routes as Sully Sullenberger. And so, watching that movie is in in essence saying, "This could have been my dad." So it made it extra personal for me. But I love the scene in that movie where that plane has landed uh, on the Hudson, and Sully Sullenberger, the pilot, the captain, is told for the first time, out of everybody who was on board, all souls. Are accounted for. They all survived. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, if the airline industry speaks about people in terms of souls, maybe the church ought to think of people in terms of souls as well. That we recognize the eternal nature of each of us and that points us to the fact that not only do we have a life that's encapsulated here, but we will go on to exist in eternity either in heaven or hell. And so that matters. The souls of people. C.S. Lewis made this great phrase. He said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. That when we recognize the eternal worth and the eternal purposes of God, we're brought into remembering a greater weight and purpose in our life than simply what we would chase on our own. And so may the Lord help us to recognize the eternal worth of others in Christ. That we would recognize the eternal worth of others in Christ. that discipleship is not a process that only matters in the next few decades. But it echoes, it ripples. it makes impact in eternity. And the last thing is this: When God changes hearts, He changes lives. When God changes hearts, he changes lives. Aren't you glad? Now I want to read here verse 42, and we're almost done here this morning. Verse 42, reading down through the end of the chapter, 3,000 souls that were added to the church that day, verse 42, and they, these people who had placed faith in Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." In my opinion, this is only my opinion, the greatest miracle of this passage is not that through the action of the Holy Spirit, people were able to hear in their own heart language. It wasn't even that people responded to Peter in such a favorable way, it's the fact that when 3,000 people had trusted in Christ, they went from converts to core in a moment. In our day, we would expect to read this in this passage. 3,000 souls trusted in Jesus Christ. They filled out decision cards. We recorded their statistics. However, we've never seen any of them again. And that's not what takes place. These 3,000 believed in the Lord Jesus, and they stepped into not only a relationship with Him, but a relationship to God's people. Tony Evans tells stories about the redwood trees that are in California. Some of you are familiar with those. I've never gotten to see them in person, would love to someday, but I've seen pictures of them, videos and things like that. Trees that grow to 200, 250 uh, feet in height. And Tony Evans observes, he says, you know, redwood trees only grow in groves of other redwood trees. And the reason for that is there's an intertwining of the roots of those trees that the only reason they're able to reach the heights that they reach is because of those intertwined roots with one another. And the pathway that the Lord Jesus has prepared for discipleship for those who come to Him is His church. And so for us, we get to become a place of interwoven roots, of lives, circumstances, relationships, ages, socioeconomic background, skin color, every other category you want to give, where the interwoven pieces of us are interwoven because of Jesus Christ and not because of anything else. And God does His greatest work. When God changes hearts, He changes lives. An author named John Ortberg said it this way, and I love this, a disciple of Jesus Christ is handcrafted. He is never mass-produced. A disciple of Jesus Christ is handcrafted. He is never mass-produced. These people get a chance to step into the biggest miracle of the passage, that not only in their one-time decision, but in their once-and-for-all decision allowing them to step into the fellowship and the body of people who had to choose whether to welcome them in or to say, well, perhaps it'd be easier if you just stayed at a distance. But the relationships and the connections and everything else, God worked in all of that. And so financially, there were things that God did. Socially, there were things that God did. Spiritually, there were things that God did. And His desire through the patient work that was now made made its way, even here in a momentary miracle, in that way we see the great scope of how God's church is the hope for His people. And so for us, the question would then resound in the same way as Peter's life seemed to be impacted by the Lord Jesus, and in that, the work that God did was growing him not only in his knowledge but in his communication in his heart for other people. The elevation of the salvation of all who are far off being the pinnacle of what he understood. And in that, God did His greatest work, and the ultimate firework was not a miracle in the classic sense, but the ultimate firework was seeing people, those who were far off, come to know Jesus Christ, and more than that, they came to know Him and came to grow in Him. None of us are called to a greater purpose or a greater task. And so for your life and for mine, where are the people that God has placed us in the midst of to seek the patient work of many other words? many other patient ways to love and to care for them. And in our own hearts and lives as we see to grow, and we want to grow in our knowledge and grow in our our spiritual understanding of God, how would the Lord lead us? And what would He do not only in us, but through us for His glory, and so that others who are far off would know the Savior. Won't you pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are, for what you've done, and for what that means for each of us. Lord, thank you that it's all about the Lord Jesus. That all we can do is obey and be responsive when you lead and when you call. And for each one of us, Lord, as disciples, may we remember that the way in which we are called to grow ultimately is to see that growth, to expand beyond ourselves, our own hearts, our own lives, our own minds. And so, Lord, for the people that we're called to, for the parents in this room who lead their children for the families in this room who love those who are close and those who are far off from you for those involved in workplaces and neighborhoods and schools and relationships Lord we just ask that you would be mighty and sovereign and moving in those Lord would you call us to obedience and may we respond father we just ask that as there's so many different personal circumstances for each one of us As students are preparing to go to camp, we ask that you would mightily move in their midst and through them. Father, for the rest of us with unseen, unheard, unknown needs and situations, Lord, may you be made great. May the Holy Spirit's work be seen just as active, and may we lean into what you're doing. So, Father, however you would challenge and call us today, we ask that you would, and we ask that we'd obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand this morning? We're going to have a time of invitation even as we close. And if you're here and God's laid someone on your heart, whether for your own life, whether for someone else's, I want to invite you to go to him based on how he's leading. If I can pray with you, if any others who are gathered here at the front can pray with you, counsel you uh, in any way, uh, if you'd like to come forward with a decision uh, for Jesus Christ, there's no better day than today, the Scripture says, to believe. Will you believe today? I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. However the Lord's leading, I want to invite you to respond. Let's go there now as we pray and as we sing together.